0: Welcome to episode 230 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm here with
1: Lydia Creech, Ash Baker,
0: and Andrew Swafford. And in today's episode, we will be talking about movies that we saw this week in part one. And in part two, we will be continuing our Jackie Chan series with 1985's Police Story. Uh, But let's go ahead and dig into movies that we saw this week. Two movies that we're going to talk about are Big Award Players, Ended up on a lot of best of the year lists, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But uh, we uh, here in the you know southern part of the United States don't really get those movies uh, as quickly as you east and west coast <laughs> elitist. So I don't know where this went. Just went to a strange place. Anyway,
2: <laughs> there's a lot of resentment just <laughs> put up in there.
0: Yeah, that- just it just got out there. Anyway let's talk about if Beale Street could talk first Uh, it's the latest from Barry Jenkins I caught this back at TIFF uh, but it has gone wide in the last few weeks Uh, it is based on the novel by James Baldwin and it tells the story of a woman who uh, is pregnant her fiance is falsely imprisoned and she and the rest of her family are working to clear his name and prove his innocence Uh, it stars Kiki Lane and Stefan James Uh, yeah Andrew what did you uh, what did you make of Beale Street?
2: I liked Beale Street, uh, though I don't know if I'm as high on it as a lot of folks are. Definitely not as high on it as you were, Zach. Though when I walked out of Moonlight, I was also in that same place. I was going to yeah, say. And. and it took you a while on that is, that is a movie that I've really come to love uh, in the, the two years since it's come out. And uh, I, it's one of my picks for like the best of the decade. So, you know, ask me two years from now all on Street, I'll probably give you a different answer. But um, just general thoughts on it. I, one thing that I admire about Barry Jenkins as a director is the way that he... Uh, has shifted his style and his influences here, but it still very much feels like him. Uh, Moonlight was pulling from a lot of uh, European and Asian slow cinema, as well as uh, Chopped and Screwed Hip Hop. Nathan has a really good video essay about that. And this one is more of like a classical melodrama. Uh, It feels a lot like Douglas Sirk at times. It feels a little bit like Jacques Demy. Um, but it it always feels like Barry Jenkins because he has this great sense of, uh, lyricism and how he captures people just looking at each other and talking to each other. Uh, a lot of folks have remarked upon, uh, just the, the romantic gaze that his characters have when they, they stare deeply into the camera and he, he's often fluctuating, um, the the slow motion uh, as well to kind of capture uh, these moments and slow them down kind of like Wong Kar Wai does. Um, My favorite, favorite scene in the movie is like a heavy conversation scene uh, with Brian Tyree Henry. He's only in one scene in the whole movie and I think he completely steals the show. He's talking to um, Stephen James about uh, his experiences in prison uh, and it's just this one long unbroken shot on him as he's kind of like shifting around and looking around and and making eye contact um, with uh, Fawny, the character's name, as Miles Davis's Kind of Blue plays in the background. And the the, the lyricism that Barry Jenkins brings to the table, it, it carries over into the sound design too because you're not just hearing a Miles Davis track play straight, you're also hearing it as it would sound in the room, so it's like diegetic uh, uh, sound with, with room noise uh, added to it, but he's also fluctuating the way that it's being mixed. There's like reverb that's, that's fading in and out, and it seems like at some points are getting more of the high end, other points are getting more of the low end, and it's like this this saga of like emotion as as brian tyree henry is like explaining his experiences in prison and the music is like always shifting around to match his level of emotion i just thought it was so so beautiful um now i do have some criticisms of the movie and i i can't really tell if they are genuine flaws with the movie or if these are like stealth strengths of the movie i'm i'm trying to figure out where I stand on it. I definitely don't take any joy in criticizing anything by Barry Jenkins because I just think he's a really great new voice. Um, The main thing for me here um, that keeps me from loving it is the structure of the movie, which I feel like increasingly is something that I I harp on a lot on Cinematary. It it is full of what um, my friend Cam called narrative cul-de-sacs, uh, for mo- much of like the first 75% of the film, we keep getting introduced to new characters and introduced to new plot points and different avenues the story could go, and it doesn't go anywhere with them uh, past that initial scene. And that is true about my favorite scene in the movie. The Brian Tyree Henry scene is a narrative cul-de-sac. It doesn't advance the plot. It increases the emotional stakes of... like. Fonny's, uh, going to prison and we know he's going go to the pri- go to prison in the future, but it doesn't serve the plot, which I don't know if it's necessarily a good or a bad thing, um, but there, there are some scenes that I felt were, were pretty unnecessary, or maybe like took the, the movie into uh, territory that it didn't necessarily need to be in. Uh, there's this long sequence that takes place in Puerto Rico, uh, two long conversations that happen in Puerto Rico, both of which—the first of which—seems just like extraneous, and we can throw that away. The other of which gets into some uh, stuff about uh, sexual abuse that I don't feel like the movie is is uh, intent enough in like fully exploring, like it. I think that there's some unfortunate timing of this coming out a couple months after the Kavanaugh hearing because the the line like I believe she was raped but not by him uh gets said and I don't think I know Barry Jenkins doesn't want like the implications of that in the time that we are currently living in but that I couldn't help but think of that when when that line uh, was said so the way that the narrative ends up going it's very sprawling it's very plotty it it has this novelistic structure, of course, because it's adapted from a Baldwin novel. Um but it you know, it has that that poetic nonverbal style on the one hand and then just like being a little overly complicated or like full of all these loose ends on a narrative end. And if you can compare that to Moonlight, like Moonlight is such a poetic, beautiful-looking movie, but it also has this like beautifully symmetrical structure with the three uh, sections and the three different actors playing uh, um, the character. There's there's something strange going on with the editing of this thing too because it's you know Moonlight is all about a progression. You're seeing somebody uh, grow up and you're seeing these ellipses throughout their lives. And this one we have like the past and the present sort of folded in upon each other. Um, we have a basic narrative that's moving forward Um, on the one hand we 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 know at the beginning of the movie that fonnie has been put in in jail uh, but then it is full of all these flashbacks and the flashbacks are placed in strange locations next to the present day narrative Uh, the flashbacks are given to us often out of order and so this is where I'm thinking to myself that maybe there's there's an intent behind this and this is part of the point of what the movie is doing because as you're jumping from scene to scene you don't necessarily know when in the plot you are and so it almost makes that very complicated uh like series of events or this 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 uh not complicated i should i shouldn't say complicated i should say it's like packed full of different events and different conversations that end up going nowhere in many cases. Um, but because you don't know when you are in that narrative, you're left with this sense of presentness. like you you're the only thing you can do is to like be there with the characters in that moment um, and not think about where they've been or where they're going. And that seems to be what Barry Jenkins does in the way that he captures these conversations in this like, very beautiful very atmospheric way like we're just gazing into each other's eyes and like existing in this moment in a a, like a very deep way um so I think that that could that could turn around and end up being a positive about the movie but I I don't know I'm still I'm still thinking about it Can can um, I interject do do just it, to yeah. kind of
0: add to that point? Yeah, because I I feel like a lot of what you're describing, especially when it comes to uh, what did you describe? What did you describe them as? Narrative cold attacks. Uh, yeah. Uh, all right. Um, I think that that's kind of what it, it, it's kind of the point of the movie. You know, it's it's a movie that is is purposefully filled with all of these kind of loose ends. It's a movie that never is really that intent. Um, and the book does the same thing neither of them really have answers for what happens to these characters they're just left in this kind of present state because that's really all they can they have they don't really have anything else to to latch on to and so you have all of these moments that kind of go somewhere and you never really find out what happens because it, one it's 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 something that is probably is not re- probably ever resolved you know you don't really have any resolution to what that narrative that plot beat is you know because these are two uh you know this is an african-american couple in new york in the 1950s 60s 70s in that range i forgot specifically when <laughs> it's really I in that, in, i'm gonna say it's the 50s yeah. yeah i started with 50s and that's what okay. i thought um <laughs> That are in the 1950s. That uh, I mean, you can you you can feel the the uh, the vibrations of the city kind of mounting up against them constantly. And the way that Barry Jenkins uh, crafts the narrative is to constantly put you at uh, in in contact with that kind of aggression on the outside, and then kind of release it and it's it's kind of this this constant uh almost breathing apparatus that maybe is not is not totally that satisfying but i think is trying to probe just the uh the experience of being black rather than uh kind of it's Uh, not green book it's not (laughs) handing you a a lesson you know
3: Um, i also want to say when moonlight came out barry jenkins did like a tour of the criterion closet and he talked about his love love of In the Mood for Love and I think this film especially parallels with it really nicely just I mean it's about a couple that has to has to has to live in the moment because kind of the past and the future I mean in In the Mood for Love it's for personal reasons and in Beale Street if Beale Street could talk it's for like these systematic racist injustice reasons but just this mo- uh, like living in the present moment and that being the whole atmosphere I see In
2: the Mood for Love in this film a lot more than I did in Moonlight. Mm-hmm. Yes, and, and there's some restaurant scenes in this mm-hmm. that really evoked In the Mood for Love for me. So I think that that's a apt comparison. Um, and you guys are uh, bringing me around to thinking these things are positives <laughs> more than negatives. But I need to watch it again uh, and, and see what my experience is like with it now that I kind of know what it's going to be yeah Um, and that's that was that was a thing for moonlight as well
0: yeah no that's 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 definitely true and uh it was one i remember watching this at tiff and i saw it like very early in the morning uh and it was a it's a very hazy movie Uh, i was listening to uh barry jenkins talk with paul thomas anderson on the dga podcast and he was talking about how uh for the last like two months or 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 less of editing he would literally watch wake up in the morning really early watch the whole movie and find little bits and parts that he wanted to clean up and fix and he said that kind of that you know that the act of of doing that was it it kind of of added this this uh this way of thinking that uh he really refined how he was how he was looking at the movie and i think that that's kind of how you have to look at it. it it is such a hazy movie it feels so foggy at times um it does have this this kind of uh just You know, narrative that is flowing all over the place that really doesn't uh, necessarily guide you in a straight path that can probably be frustrating. It also has, uh, you know, the voiceover uh, coming in at times. And
2: it's. Yeah, that was a strange choice, I thought. Um, And especially paired with, you know, at the beginning of the movie, at the end of the movie, there are also uh, still photographs, like historical photographs that are just placed on screen. As the voiceover is happening, there's a there's a freeze frame that happens near the beginning during the voiceover. And I kind of felt like I was just being whipped in all directions. Um, I don't know. What do you make? of I all was that wondering stuff?
3: if that was a function of being adapted from the novel. I think like so because the novel the novel is voice. very
0: much in her in her voice. Like she's narrating okay. this the story, and it's deeply. Uh, you know, built into her dialogue and the way that she's describing stuff. So I, I want to, f- I feel like that is Jenkins, who has been on the record saying that he was pretty faithful with this adaptation was probably trying to kind of, uh, you know, imbue Baldwin's voice into into the narrative. That's my only guess. I wonder
2: if it would have been strengthened by removing that narration because I think he's so good at conveying characters' inner lives and emotions without narration, right, um, I wonder if it would be a less is more uh, situation I, mean, I think you're trying to evoke kind of that
3: hazy, foggy atmosphere voiceover works towards that it's like putting it a little bit removed like a little bit dreamy kind of state that is true,
2: yeah, it's like how far in the future is she narrating this from? we're kind of unclear on that, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm
2: but I, we would all recommend it for sure people should go watch it
3: it's really yeah
0: it's a very beautiful movie uh if Beale Street could talk it is in theaters now another uh one that I've seen pop up on a lot of the best of 2018 lists that just recently kind of hit theaters around here is Lifters, the uh uh Hirokazu Koreeda movie uh he, I, he's been pretty prolific at least recently with with films. He's been popping out a lot lately. But this one won the Palme d'Or at Cannes last year, uh, and pretty much the story is you you are you pick up this makeshift family of shoplifters uh yeah, i guess they're they all kind of have their grift of choice but uh it is this you have this husband and wife character then you have a grandmother character a kind of middle uh, probably mid-20s character and then these these two children the young the young girl of which you you meet uh very early in the film when the when the husband and the and the young boy uh see her outside in the freezing cold and they kind of take her in and, and let her join this this ragtag group of people uh, and then you follow the life as they uh, this very poor family is kind of making making do to survive and really tries to form this bond as a real family even though none of them really are all too connected in terms of, of you know fa- familial blood and that begins to uh, to unravel as the plot goes on and I, I don't want to you know just jump too, bit, uh, too deep into uh, kind of the third act of the movie because that kind of gets heavy into spoiler territory. But it was a movie that I I did see high on a lot of people's lists. Um, I'm not s- incredibly familiar with Corieta's stuff. I know that, like I said, that he has been relatively prolific lately. Um, but this one, I was kind of hit or miss with. There was a lot of moments that were uh, genuinely moving, uh, I don't know. I have the the list of names here, but it's it's letterbox and doesn't have it attached to people. Uh, but the woman who plays the wife character uh, in this is, I thought, just gives just this wonderful performance uh, as, as you can just as you can see her kind of uh, surrog- uh, surrogating her her affection and love and you know wanting to be a mother onto this young girl who they who they pick up and, and try to you know save from her because it's it's a alluded to that her family life is is you know she's being uh hit and beaten and disregarded by by her uh mother and so you can see her trying to kind of be this parental figure for her um but i also feel like this this movie kind of has stretches of it that don't necessarily uh culminate together there are these like wonderful human moments that kind of are pieced together and uh you know build up the core of this film but I don't know I, and I got I, I think I understand you know the point that's being kind of gleaned from the third act and, and how it how the, the plot kind of transpires but I don't necessarily it, it, it kind of started to lose me a little bit uh, midway through that and I, I regained it a little bit but it was a movie that I, I feel like I liked a little bit less than a lot of other people but Andrew I'm curious to hear your thoughts
2: I'm in a similar place. I think I, I'm a little bit more positive on it than you seem to be, Zach. Um, but I also come to it from a place of mostly ignorance about Corey Ada. Uh, I've only seen his movie Our Little Sister. Have you seen any of his other movies before this?
0: No, that's what I'm saying. I, I, I'm okay. a, he's a blind spot of mine.
2: Okay. So I've seen Our Little Sister. I know he has a, a bunch of stuff that is all all kind of in the same vein of these like quiet family dramas. And when I watched that movie, I, I felt I, I liked it. I thought it was charming. I enjoyed watching it, but it felt very slight to me. And uh, it, I'm reminded watching Shoplifters of this thing that Nathan said on the podcast a while back. Um, he was talking about the difference between, uh, I think it was white elephant art versus termite art, like termite art being something that is very small scale and unassuming, but ends up being more important over time than than the stuff that like presents itself as being really important and for without our little sister it did just feel slight in in kind of a negative way with this i do feel like it has a sense of resonance that that movie didn't have it might just be because there's more of a, a political dimension to this it, it's dealing directly with class it has a much more complicated family dynamic. Um, but I don't know. i I felt much more emotionally moved watching shoplifters. It, it has this sense of purity to it uh, for much of the runtime. The, the family here is extremely unorthodox. It's kind of grotesque at times, to be honest. Um, but it is this, this, uh, portrait in a way of, of kind of like a perfect family. Um, these characters when they're off on their own they often have to do very dangerous things or saddening things like shoplifting is the obvious thing but there's also uh one of the daughters does something called hostessing which is uh, i i don't know if i can explain it very well lydia are you familiar with what hostessing is um
3: uh, i'm familiar with it it's kind of like paid companionship people go see hostesses and hosts for the experience of being catered to in this like very false environment it's not necessary it's not
2: sex work it's in, in this it is more like sex work um there okay. there's a companionship but it's element like this yeah. level
3: of emotional engagement that you're yeah. paying for is the idea
0: right and it In this one, it's like, there's like a screen in between the hostess and the person who's there, and they're uh, kind of, they're engaging with the other person, but there is this kind of like barrier between, it's, you know. I mean,
2: there's some kind of tame stripping that happens too, right? And uh, it seems like the daughter doesn't have a problem with this necessarily, but there's a huge difference between seeing these characters on their own and doing the things they have to do to get by and when they're together, when they're just so loving and so supportive and and so happy like genuinely happy. It is the the least toxic family dynamic you can possibly imagine. Um, and you you get this in, in these very overly emotional scene when one the the mother character is explaining to like the the newest addition to the family like, what actual familial love is like as opposed to abusive uh, familial uh, dynamics and then there's also this this sense of of purity in these light humorous scenes as well there's a scene where uh, the dad is talking to his son about his son going through puberty and like starting to to you know feel compelled to look at women's boobs in public and stuff like that and it's a it's a laugh scene but it's also like this this like aspirational, like this is what, this is what uh, uh, a father and a son could get along like if there wasn't all this other baggage that people are usually working through with their family. Yeah. The dynamic
0: between the, uh, the young boy and the kind of the, the man, the, the husband where he's kind of, he's desperately wanting to be this kid's father. And that's kind of where the movie, uh, ends on is this dynamic between those two characters and i and i feel like that's uh between that and the in the wife character and the young girl like those kind of parallels and like you said just the the emotional baggage of them actually being related and having that in you know in between the relationship just alleviating that it like shows the uh, the uh almost the most like pure way to uh to parent another uh, you know to, to parent a young person because you don't have that emotional baggage of this is somebody you know this is your offspring it's just you you chose this person and are you know deciding to devote your love and affection to them
2: so the character work here the the emotional uh resonance of this movie all feels really strong to me um i think that my criticisms fall along the same lines that yours do, Zach, um, where it, it starts to just kind of feel a little muddled uh, after you get past the halfway point in terms of how it's structured. I don't think that this movie uses time very well. Um, Cora Ada is sometimes talked about, like in Paul Schrader's book, his, his new intro to his book, he talks about Cora Ada as being tangential or part of like the modern slow cinema movement he's borderline slow cinema he's definitely inspired by ozu but um i think the difference is that slow cinema i mean people the the misconception is like it's it's movies but boring uh and and really like slow cinema is movies that use time in an incredibly intentional way like they are they're planning out the time uh and you know. You, you have the flip side of that, like very high, fast-paced movies like Fury Road and, and things like that. But slow cinema is like asking you to experience time with the characters. And I don't know, and this, this does get a little slow and a little boring and a little too mundane at times, but I don't think it's because time is being uh, restrained in an intentional way. It just felt like, the, the scenes were, they just kept going on and on and on and on and on. And they weren't really cohering after a certain point in the movie. Like, it, it's really focused for the first half, and then it, it sprawls out in a lot of different directions. Um, the, the back half reminds me a little, lot of uh, Leave No Trace, uh, as the, the characters who have kind of created their own insular, functional family dynamic now have to deal with um the expectations of the outside world but i thought that the way that that movie used like pace and atmosphere and time to convey that was way stronger than what shoplifters ends up doing
0: yeah agreed well shoplifters is in theaters now uh lydia i'll be curious to get your thoughts as i know it's coming near you uh Mm -hmm. pretty soon next week um Mm Yeah, but I'm going to toss it over to Ash. Uh, you're going to kind of give us a little bit of a preview. You're going to be writing about this film for the, uh, for the site, but uh, curious to hear a little bit about They.
1: Yeah, so um, I watched this movie, They. Um, it is uh, directed by and written by um, Anahita Gazvinazada. Veniz- Gaz- um and it premiered um at Cannes in 2017 uh, as a special selection and it stars Reese Ferenbacher as the protagonist Jay. And basically um I really I was really excited to see this movie um because it is the first movie I think I've even heard of Uh, And definitely that I've seen that has a character, even in it, uh, who uses singular they, them pronouns. So I was excited to see the movie, and (laughs) so I watched it, and um, I took it in. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Um, No, there are some good parts about this movie, but ultimately, I think that it presents a really, really interesting premise in the very start, and it quickly um, veers away from it. We start the film at a doctor's appointment with the protagonist, Jay, who has been taking hormone blockers to postpone puberty. Um, Jay is 14 years old, and um, basically... um, They've been taking the, these hormone blockers um, because they're questioning their gender identity and they don't want to go through with a puberty that they may not want. And um, so the doctors and their parents are just giving them some time to think before they decide um, you know, what they want to do. So in this doctor's appointment that we begin the film... In the doctor tells Jay, you're losing bone density because you've been on these hormone blockers for two years. So you need to go through with puberty. You just need to decide which hormones you want to start. So, you, you know, so you need to decide basically whether you want to develop male or female characteristics. Um, basically, is how we begin the film. And that in and of itself is, to me, like a wildly interesting premise, um, for, to kind of force a child and someone who, um, may identify as non-binary, um, to, to force them to kind of choose one or the other, um... Is super interesting and like uh, kind of devastating. And but the film doesn't stay there, it quickly moves away from that and focuses on lots of other things. Like um, Jay's uh, sister and her boyfriend come to stay with Jay, and we get caught up in a lots of family drama how um jay's sister doesn't get along with their parents and they just don't want her to be an artist and she's doing too many residencies and blah 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 and it's like all right and and then we go to um uh the the sister's name is lauren and her we go to lauren's boyfriend's um house or a uh, family's house for like a family dinner for like an hour of the movie basically and in an hour and a half movie we spend with um the sister's boyfriend who's who's iranian and um basically uh it becomes about him and and how uh it's like a reuniting of his family that's home from iran and um it's like okay you know jay's there and feeling very uncomfortable and um so it's like uh the plot is very misdirected and um uh jay as a character is kind of um in addition to the plot being kind of like misguided i guess is jay as a character is um really bleak i want to say um oh oh like you know this is a whole thing like whenever i ask my friend or ask my friends you know hey have you seen this movie or whatever and it's an lgbt movie they're like does someone die or you know (laughs)
2: like that's the thing (laughs) it's like is it
1: is it sad like it, I'll, I'll watch it if no one kills themselves. Basically, is is what it comes down to. Like queer people are so starved of representation, positive and,
3: representation.
1: Um, yeah, and um, you know Reese Fehrenbacher, I'm I'm really glad was casted in this role because I read that you know, um, he was in the process of transitioning uh, while they were making the film. So like a plus for casting. Um and I, and I'm even tempted to say that like his performance is like really good. I just think that the character it's um, is uh, like miswritten, I guess um,
0: Is anybody uh, behind the camera whether the, the director or the writer is anybody uh, I, does anybody like identify that way you know is, is kind of in tune with- <laughs> With you know, the, with the, like the the story, in any way, I
1: really I really tried hard to find this out. I searched high and low. Um, the director and writer doesn't have a Wikipedia page. I read an interview on um, the Cannes Film Festival website, and basically, what she says about um, her inspiration for making the film is basically that she was just um interested in ideas of identity and um the idea of like coming home is like very um, resonant to her as an immigrant, which makes sense because that's what an hour of the movie is about and like I you know if that's the movie that she wanted to make like I would be very happy to watch a movie about that but, Just for this movie to be, like, presented as an LGBT movie, to be presented as a movie about non-binary existence, to be presented, you know, uh, to be about... um, Like that was yeah yeah that's what the description (laughs) on every site on IMDb on Wikipedia on uh, Amazon Prime on everything you look at it it says it's about uh, you know a young um, person who's you know struggling with their gender identity and um, it's not about that you know and um, Jay's like Jay's like uh, just like crouching the whole movie, Jay's hiding, Jay's, um, like, uh, clutching something the whole movie, Jay's so scared and, like, um, sad, very, uh, like, uh, like, dead-eyed, there, there are lots of, like, close-ups of Jay's face, and, like, they don't even, they, they, it just seems like there's no life in their eyes, and it's like, well, you know, people might say well you know it's the hormone blockers or whatever it's like well (laughs) you know there's no hint at that in the film and there's no um i don't know
0: well i'll be uh i'll be curious to hear that's disappointing yeah i'll be curious to hear more thoughts uh in into the written review but if for people who are kind of interested to to catch it before your your review comes out where uh, did you say it was streaming on amazon
1: yeah it's it's on amazon Prime.
0: cool All right, they. uh, Yeah, check that out, and then look for Ash's review on the site. Um, Real quickly to wrap up, Lydia, you're going to... Slap on some uh, some jean shorts and a, an American flag, and talk about the Dixie <laughs> Chicks.
3: Actually, not an American flag. they not. Uh, this is a 2006. <laughs> uh, well, this is a 2006 documentary by Barbara Kopple and Cecilia Peck. Barbara Kopple did Harlan County, USA. If you know that documentary called Dixie K- Chicks colon shut up and sing, it's about the fallout in 2003. The, Tixi, the Dixie Chicks were at the height of their popularity. They were like one of the most profitable female country groups, maybe just female groups ever. And they were on their world tour, top of the world. And in London in 2003, right on the eve of America's invasion of Iraq, based on the lies of George W. Bush about mass weapons of mass destruction, that Saddam Hussein had uh, lead singer, Natalie Maines,
0: I learned yes. about that in Vice, so yeah, I'm, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I, I'm very, I'm very aware of what you're talking about because I watched Vice. Continue.
3: <laughs> Lead singer Natalie, Natalie Maines, just makes a little offhand comment like, "We're so ashamed to be from Texas, the same state as our president," and it was just kind of a joke at the time. The London audience loved it, but all of the country music stations in the United States and a lot of these. Far-right, I would say fringe, but they're mainstream now, Uh, (laughs) political groups lost their minds. And it wasn't an official boycott, but the Dixie Chicks got a ton of hate. The radio stations stopped playing all of their music. They actually received some death threats at some of the concerts that they did on the U.S. leg of this tour. And it's this really incredible documentary that I think is a little bit of a crystallization of these, uh, what people are willing to politicize. There's a lot of interviews of like former Dixie Chick fans. They're like, I really like them. They're so talented, but I just wish they'd keep the politics to themselves. Shut up and sing. And the documentary is kind of in two halves. It documents the backlash that they received for just this one comment and then them trying to restage, write their second album in 2006. And I don't, not necessarily make a comeback in country. What I really admired about Natalie Maines is she's like, I'm not sorry. I did not deserve the treatment that I got and I'm still mad. And I was right that what we did in Iraq was shameful And I don't know, I got pretty (laughs) teary-eyed throughout it. I really admired the way the Dixie Chicks, the other two band members, Emily Irwin and Marty McGuire, stood by her. They agreed with her. They never threw each other under the bus. And it's like, we just want to be able to make our music and also be allowed to have political opinions as individuals.
2: It became this whole, like, free speech thing. (laughs) Probably not likely, but... It would be nice if there was, like, a follow-up movie called Shut Up and Dribble.
3: Oh.
0: I think that's what Space Jam 2 is about, actually.
3: (laughs) Ew. I'm not sure where to find it. I got it from the DVD from my library, but I really highly recommend it. It's entertaining, and it's got a lot of good music in it, I guess. I might be a Dixie Chicks fan now. (laughs) Or what is it? (laughs) (laughs) I'm gonna get into the Dixie checks.
0: Well, if and if you're confused or unsure of any of the politics of this movie, again, Vices and Theaters Now, it clears that all up <laughs> yeah. for you. It's very straightforward and it lets you know what you are stupid about. So check it out. It's there for your knowledge. Uh, we're gonna take a short break. We'll be back. Go oh. ahead, Lydia. <laughs>
3: natalie main calls george w bush a dumb fuck like straight to camera and it's really affirming
0: (laughs) that's probably that sounds like a better scene than anything in vice so i'm already i'm already down with this movie uh we're gonna take a short break police story in part two after this this is zach dennis talking to you during this ad break. Just imagine me in like a armchair, velvet robe, with a, with a snifter. I think that's what it's called, a snifter of uh, bourbon or brandy, and I'm doing a little shaky thing. And I'm talking to you here about what we're doing at Cinematary, because I guess, according to this description, it's a very sophisticated, very high-class organization. And it, it, it has its moments, you know, I think... We may have a jackass episode every once in a while, but we also hit, hit the finer arts, as they say. Uh, but there's a lot of stuff happening on Cinematary that we hope you can support. Um, we've, we've tried to, to take your money multiple times. We're, I guess, very bad at it. Uh, I feel no richer than I it was at the beginning of this. So we'll go ahead and let that pass. You know, it's fine. We'll, we'll move on from that. And uh, let's just focus on what we have on the website. There's a lot of great stuff, uh, video essays, reviews, uh, et cetera list, all that good stuff is at Cinematary.com But also, if you're a fan, a rating and a review is always helpful. I know all the podcasts say that, but uh, listen to the guy who's in an armchair with a velvet robe and a snifter of brandy as he asks you kindly to uh, write and review the podcast on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, all the good stuff. Uh, We're doing a lot of hard work is out there from these people who are working on Cinematary, and that's a nice reward for it. So if you're enjoying the show, please do. rate subscribe all that good stuff uh but i've I've talked too long and i know we have a very nuanced high class discussion so i'm gonna i'm gonna take a sip of my brandy and uh yeah on with the show Sum And we are back with part two of episode 230 of Cinematary In this part we will be continuing our Jackie Chan series with 1985's Police Story. It's directed by Jackie Chan from a script by him and Edward Tang. Uh, The film stars Chan, Bridget Lin, Maggie Chung, uh, Chor Yun and Charlie Cho. Uh, The plot follows an honest Hong Kong cop who is protecting a triad boss's girlfriend turned informer who finds himself framed for the murder of a dirty cop and going on the run. The film contained many large-scale action sequences, including an opening sequence featuring a car chase through a shanty town, Jackie Chan stopping a double-decker bus with his service revolver, and a climactic fight scene in a shopping mall. The final scene earned the film the nickname Glass Story by the crew due to the hot, huge number of panes of sugar glass that were broken. During a stunt in this last scene in which Chan slides down a pole for several stories and then the lights covering the pole had heated up he did it up considerably, resulting in him suffering second-degree burns, particularly to his oh. hands, as well as a back injury and dislocation of his pelvis upon landing. And they make you know a lot of effect to that because they replay it three times in the movie, which is kind of fun. Oh yeah. Edward Tang, the screenwriter for this film and many others, said that he did not write this film the way normal Hollywood screenwriters work. Chan instructed Tang to structure the comedic film around a list of props and location, e.g., a shopping mall, a village, a bus, etc. In contrast to this production, most Hollywood films rely on the creativity of the screenwriters to create the plot elements of a film, which are then forwarded to the director for actual filming. In an interview with Chan, he discusses the stunt of sliding down the pole covered with lights. As with the clock tower stunt from Project A in 1983, Chan described his fear at the thought of performing the stunt. However, during the filming of Police Story, there was the added pressure of strict time constraints as the shopping mall had to be cleaned up and ready for business the following morning. One of Chan's stuntmen... Gave him a hug and a Buddhist prayer paper, which he put in his trousers before finally performing the stunt. Stuntman Blackie Ko doubled for Chan during a motorcycle stunt in which his character drives through glass towards a hitman. In the double decker bus scene, Jackie used a metal umbrella because a wooden one kept slipping when he tried to hang on to the bus. The film was cited by Jackie Chan as his personal favorite among his more than 100 feature films at the time. Before starting work on Police Story, uh, Jackie Chan suffered through an ill-conceived Hollywood project, The Protector. Although shot in Hong Kong, director James Glickenhaus referred Refused to work in the local style. Glickenhaus recalled, quote, They never shoot masters. They nev- they shoot very short sections, and they do a lot of under-cranking to speed up the movement, which I refused to do. I told him I wanted to shoot the fights in masters, and then if they, de- they didn't work, go back and cover them. Chan preferred to shoot stunts in segments, allowing time to perfect each gesture. He went along with Glickenhaus's plan, but reshot sequences behind his back and inserted them into the version released in Asia. It was a box office failure, and Chan wouldn't have stateside success until the 1990s while he was in hollywood for his first busted project though the big brawl chan spent time watching a lot of silent films saying buster keaton harold lloyd and what they did was amazing buster keaton gave me a lot of ideas new things i could do that were physical or funny but wasn't fighting in 1987, the New York Times said the film's program notes describe Mr. Chan, who is both the director and star of Police Story, as, quote, a combination of Buster Keaton and Clint Eastwood, which says less about Mr. Chan than it does about the festival's gift for unhinged hyperbole. Mr. Chan has nothing in common with either Buster Keaton or Clint Eastwood. He is more like a scale down, this is his word, not mine, oriental Silver- Sylvester Stallone with energy and a willingness to smile fondly at himself. Police Story is of principal interest As a souvenir of another culture. Side note Vincent Canby is a fucking (laughs) asshole. 1980 In the 1987 <laughs> monthly film Bulletin, uh, they said, Police Story starts well with its car chase described as an astonishing, astonishing set piece, but that once the mix of realistic settings and fantasy action seems to be, have been established, the film falls back on Chance Clowning and turns into a slapstick comedy heavily dependent on cake-in-the-face jokes. In 2018, <laughs> for the 4K restoration, Matt Zeller Sites wrote for RogerEbert.com. Uh, Police Story is one of the great 1980s action films. It's also one of the most 80s action films. It's a bundle of cop on the edge cliches that climaxes with Chan's Hong Kong policeman man hero at war with both his by the book superior officers and the crime lord villain who remains stubbornly beyond the law's reach. The synthesized score is music to uh, moose one's hair by like many Chan films from this period of his career. It ends with a freeze frame followed with outtakes of Chan and his fellow performers goofing around on set and getting injured scored to a pop song sung by Chan himself but as is the case with most uh, uh, memorable comedies as well as most memorable thrillers the excellence of police story has nothing to do with what kind of movie it is and everything to do with how it's executed I think that is a perfect note to uh, start our discussion of police story on, uh, and talk a little bit about this film, which kind of for me begins very much the same as Wheels on Meals that we talked about last week, where it is straight nonsense for at least an hour, <laughs> and then the and then the actual <laughs> plot of the film kicks off, which I can see why that's probably a uh, a hindrance for a lot of Western audiences trying to kind of get into these because it just whatever. Happens in the first forty-five minutes has it it has it it relates the plot, but it's nonsense. I
2: think that once we're once we're fifteen minutes and the plot has settled in, as soon as he has to uh, be the the bodyguard of the, the crime boss lady. The, secretary. the plot the plot is kicked in the plot right? no the plot is
0: that he's framed for the murder and goes on the run
3: that doesn't happen until like halfway
2: exactly.
0: The movie. <laughs> it's exactly i guess i saw the like-
2: plot i i guess there's two different conflicts here one of which is he's framed for murder and the other of which is he has to resolve things with maggie chung um, Which we Does all you have. Actually like,
3: do that?
2: <laughs> not really. I mean, we'll, we'll get to that, I guess. Okay,
3: <laughs> that's what I thought.
2: But I mean, I was—I did not have any trouble following what was happening for the first hour. I mean, I didn't. I would not call it pure nonsense at all.
0: I mean, I'm not saying that like as a
2: negative, it's, it's it's super fun
3: to do stunts, right? Yeah.
0: I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's nonsense in the way of, yeah, he's just doing stunts and doing bits and it really, it doesn't, it correlates to what the actual plot is. But for the most part, like there, there, there's a correlation between the whole phone sequence and the plot. But for the most part, again, (laughs) it's, it's not about what the movie is about. It's about him executing this, this completely crazy bit which is fantastic and and, and great but i feel like it it just reminds me it was the same thing with the last movie where there's a lot of just uh just kind of fluffery of of different stunts and different bits and then they finally get into what the movie like what the log line of the movie actually is and i feel like that's probably why it uh sometimes this this kind of struggles to connect with some audiences but I, i don't know maybe i'm on my own on this one what did you guys think
3: i agree
2: <laughs> agree with what exactly
3: i agree that it takes a long time to either a get infested or figure out what's going on and if you are not there for the stunt work for the fight for choreography for the kung fu um a lot of it might be a little bit boring It's not sacrilegious <laughs>
2: I felt like the um, the the plot, like once the whole Jackie is framed for murder thing kicks in at the hour mark, like you're mentioning, Zach, I thought that actual plot was the least compelling part of this. I was way more interested when it was mostly gags and, and character work. But, um, Ash, what were you about to say?
1: Yeah, I, um, whenever he starts to he has to like uh bodyguard the secretary um I, I felt like i could follow that pretty well but whenever like he's over at her house or apartment or whatever and he's and he's like you know let me in like you know being alone is dangerous and um and she like won't let him in as uh in the apartment and then he like
2: Fake he, Michael Myers he, comes he, in through yeah, the, through yeah. The
1: closet. he like gets somebody to come in and like fake like knife <laughs> knife her. It, so like that was a little confusing to me Just I mean pretend. it was funny because it like she like knocks him out you know and and he has to be like you know oh shit like that's my friend you know but um but the plot like really kind of got interesting to me when um. At the court scene, like before that, when they're in Jackie's apartment, I was like, you know, I was really enjoying the thing of like the cakes and the the girlfriend stuff, like misunderstandings and and things like that. But um, when, it, you know, it was funny. But then when we get to the court scene and um, it's going really poorly and then he he's like, I have a tape. And, um, you know, you you think it's going to be the tape that he recorded of her in the car, like, getting evidence (laughs) against this guy. But then, no, it's actually, like, she had stolen his tape recorder and, like, recorded him, like, being an absolute doofus in his own apartment.
2: Um, And every line has a double entendre. It's such a, a written, like, humorous scene, you know? A lot of the... the, It would play over radio well. It it could, absolutely. And so a lot of the quotes that you were reading, Zach, from reviewers saying like, well, it's all about the physicality. You don't have to worry about anything else. I think that's a good example of like, no, this actually is like planned and orchestrated very well, like on the page as well.
1: Yeah. I I feel like that's where the plot actually got really interesting to me before I was, like Lydia was saying, like really interested in... um, like cars smashing through an entire fucking village and um ja- Jackie Chan being pulled behind a bus and uh Oh my god. Yeah. Uh, you know in Spider Verse when they're like that whole thing of like Spider Man always get gets back up? <laughs> Jackie Chan always gets back up.
0: It's also worth mentioning that this is uh this this he directed this one as well as worked on the script, um, which he was not as involved necessarily in the last movie, and so that's probably why a lot of the orchestration of the different gags and how everything is is. Portrayed is much more precise. Um, it feels like if you were watching something by, uh, you know, going back to the silent comics that we talked a lot about last week, but it's like watching like a Chaplin film or Buster Keaton film where you know that they've orchestrated and planned out and, you know, figured out the the uh, logistics for how this, you know, plot device and this gag is going to work and fit into their overall narrative structure. And this, in, in Police Story, it feels they, exact same way and i feel like that's because you have jackie behind the camera as well as doing everything else i mean does that make a difference for this one compared to wheels on meals
3: um i wonder if this one did you get a better opportunity for jackie chan to show off what he's doing uh this one's the first one we've seen for the series that actually has the outtake reel because did wheels on meals didn't have that i don't think at least not the one on Amazon but it's like you see the effort that he's putting into it and like he's really showcasing his own talents and like giving himself opportunities to do these set pieces to do these stunts like specifically the narrative is built around them so if the plot doesn't make any sense for a minute it's because he's doing this set piece.
0: Yeah, exactly, and and that's and you know I guess again I have to like backtrack my poor uh, sorry description of the beginning of the movie from nonsense, but there is a lot of that where it's just (laughs) it is just these these crazy uh, ways that he is kind of getting from point A to point B, Um, and even in the uh, even in the where he's playing the uh, (laughs) the bodyguard for the uh, the informer. Uh, girlfriend you know it's just he's it's it's constantly kind of this uh this this give and take um almost is this slapsticky almost at, at times laurel and hardy-esque uh where it's it's they're working off of each other i think bridget lynn who plays the uh, uh selena the informer character she uh She's really good with, with uh, Jackie Chan in this. I mean, Maggie Chung uh, has good moments, but is mainly just taking the brunt of his assholery. But like Bridget Lynn is, is like kind of working off him. And especially in the last sequence of the uh, of the movie is, is taking some hard hits as well you know compa- uh, on top of what jackie's doing you know she's also crashing through glass and uh having to uh fight off these attackers
3: like breaking a yeah. table um, yeah i also like the scene where they're, they're in the apartment with jackie chan and she she and maggie chong is jackie chan's girlfriend like a little bit gang up on him because she's aware that the girlfriend's in the
0: apartment
3: (laughs) and he's in the shower and she's like but don't you love your
0: girlfriend he's like she's fine (laughs) (laughs) um i'm I'm curious kind of going back to the or going to the perception of this movie it seems like this out of the the ones that we're talking about especially the hong kong movies of his is kind of the uh the number one the one that people most allude to and um i'm curious what what you guys make of that of, of this being kind of the uh the number one Jackie Chan Hong Kong uh, produced movie. I mean, it created a franchise of movies. There's, I don't know, like six or seven something like something like that uh, police story movies after this. So it kind of created a line for him. Um, I mean, do you feel like just the kind of basic structure of '80s cop movies kind of helps that you know in the in the vein of something like Die Hard, where it just kind of has this basic structure that you could work to to copy over and over again? Or is I mean, is there something about Um, this kind of performance in this character that seems to work better than uh, some of the other Jackie characters, especially in Hong Kong. I guess I'm curious, (laughs) Lydia, because I know you've been watching a lot of his movies uh, recently.
3: Jackie Chan seems like he plays kind of a lot of cop characters (laughs) because he plays a policeman. No, he's a Navy man kind of against anyway. Project A, like these positions of authority he's a policeman and I think Rumble in the Bronx which is like a Chinese policeman in the Bronx slash Vancouver <laughs> um, sorry I forgot the question I just started answering it
2: what so the question was out of all the Jackie Chan movies you've seen since you've seen a lot more than any of us have I, I think does this stand out as like the one to watch because it, it seems like that's the reputation
3: I'm going to say no, and I don't know if that's just because, again, I'm not as interested in just the pure stunt work slash choreography of what he's doing. I don't necessarily think his character, like, kind of, he plays the well-meaning but a little bit beleaguered policeman in a lot of the works I've seen, and I don't know if this is the nest like archetypal version of that, or the best representation. I liked him a lot better in Project A. It's just like a little bit mischievous, um, but ultimately very loyal to the force sort of thing. I also don't see how this kicked off a whole seven film franchise.
0: (laughs) Well, it's such a it's such a difference from the character he played in Wheels on Meals where he's just kind of this goofy getting by uh, <laughs> skateboards around from his food truck character. And this one, he's even though he's kind of, uh, you know, I wouldn't say he's all put together in this at the same time. He at least has a, uh, a straight line of 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 a conscience that he's kind of playing, especially right. in the last act of the movie where he's, uh, you know, on the run
3: kind of like this higher sense of loyalty thing. I don't know like there's a cop that wants to do the right thing but maybe the department's kind of corrupt or inefficient. And I'm not sure this is the best plot line to illustrate that character. Especially because he's such a jerk to his girlfriend.
2: (laughs) Yeah, he is kind of a selfish asshole in this movie.
1: I felt so bad for her Especially because, like, all, all of that shit, like, he was so <laughs> kind of douchey to her throughout the movie, and then towards the end, he's like, May, get the briefcase. And I was like, sweet, she's going to get the briefcase and save the day, and it's going to be good. And then she gets kicked oh, down the oh, fucking oh, stairs. Twice. Twice.
2: <laughs>
1: uh, twice. I was like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs>
2: And she just sort of forgives him for his assholishness out of nowhere. Like, we don't see that emotional beat happen for her. It happens between scenes, and all of a sudden, she's just doting upon him again. And so, it's a weird character dynamic. I kind of um, think to get really invested Yeah, I kind of
3: think in. this is a problem with a lot of the Hong Kong versions I've seen. I mentioned this at the very beginning. I think this is a good time and setting to talk about it. Like, the movies just end. Like, he has a very intense, climactic fight scene that is really impressive, and it goes on for a bit. And then when the fight is over, the movie is over, (laughs) regardless of if any of these plot lines have actually been resolved. And I don't know how I feel about that. I mean, I guess if you're if you don't care, like if you're there for like this is a Jackie Chan vehicle, this is a vehicle for doing studs, for showing off choreography or like really I, it doesn't really matter.
2: Well, I think the movie assumes that the plot line has already been resolved and we've forgotten all about the, the conflict with Maggie Chan's character, but no, it actually hasn't. <laughs>
1: It's like he won the fight, so it's all good. <laughs> but that fight scene...
3: Yeah.
2: Um, Can we talk about just the, the big set pieces in this movie? I that feel was kind of impressive. I it's a bit <laughs> Captain Obvious here. Action movie has great action scenes.
1: It was scenes, awesome.
2: But this movie has really great yeah. big action scenes. Ones in which I'm like actively yes. worried for the health of the actors doing it. Apparently for good reason, since they're going to the hospital between every take. Uh, is this what watching Mission Impossible Fallout is like? Uh, this seems like how people described that movie earlier this year. Yeah. But like the scene Hot at the thing. beginning with the, the bus chase and he's he's using an umbrella to like latch on to the end of the bus and he's being dragged. <laughs> the The aerial shot like down at him as he's like trying to keep his feet off of the ground is one thing, but the wider shot when the... Bus is going around the curve And he's like swinging off of the bus And like dangling in the middle of the air Actually held by nothing but an umbrella hook I Like that is horrifying and like really thrilling I don't usually get that uh, like tied up in the The safety of characters in action movies But I really did in this one for some reason
3: because jackie chan doesn't come off across like tom cruise does like a little bit egotistical especially in these early films where it's not like i have to prove myself i can still do it it's like no i'm just gonna do it because i'm gonna be the best at this if that's the difference
2: i guess it's a buster keaton thing as well yeah
3: zach
0: i mean i guess isn't that like the mark of a good action movie that you uh (laughs) Just kind of sitting there, like, you know, amazed at the... You don't want to be, like, not amazed at the... You know, because you, like, watch a Marvel movie and you're just like... Yeah, but I think that that's kind of, like, some of the sheen from watching, you know, something from uh, Jackie Chan or even far back uh, with Buster Keaton or even currently, to an extent, with Tom Cruise, like, just the... The physicality aspect of adding that to to the uh, to the sequence does it, it 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 heightens it a little bit because I mean like even though I didn't love Fallout there is it's pretty insane to watch the moment when he jumps off that helicopter and you see his ankle actually break like you can see the 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 moment his ankle breaks because it was reported that his ankle that he broke his ankle during filming and like that adds that does add to it and and yeah I think that Tom Cruise is. It's a little bit more showy. You know, he's like, here I am going on the helicopter, and he does it, and people, you know, flip out about it. But I think adding that physicality does... It it, it heightens the the sequence that you're watching. It's the same for watching, uh, you know, having that practicality in, like, Fury (laughs) Road, like, knowing that that's all happening. It seems superficial, but I think it does make that small leap of difference.
3: I will also say, I think... Jackie Chan's editing influences. You're making fun of me, Zach, for watching the video over and over again and my... don't know if we talked about it you on mic or off it. mic. Right. The Tony Zhao video that talks about how Jackie Chan edits his films, especially the ones he's directed, but the ones he's in also, to emphasize what he's doing physically and give you the best shot. Uh, when he slides down the pole at the end at the mall, like you see that three times and I kind of have to assume they only did it once and those are the three shots they got from different camera angles <laughs> and they're going to put it all in there because it's <laughs> impressive.
0: Uh. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, he did... Uh, you know go to the hospital afterwards so <laughs> uh,
1: so you're gonna use that take <laughs> uh, well the first time he like you know slid down the thing i was like i want to see that again and then he like <laughs> and then i and then i got to see it two more times I was like, <laughs> yes. Hell yeah.
2: they knew what you wanted before you could ask for it Ash, I'm curious,
0: uh, you mentioned off mic before we started recording that you weren't at like super into action movies, but you've really been kind of getting into the genre by watching these Jackie Chan movies. Um, I mean, does does kind of that practicality element add to that or what's been kind of piquing your interest about the action genre at large because of these movies?
1: Yeah, um, Nathan Smith and I used to fight about this back in college um, because Nathan's a big action movie guy, and I would be like, action movies are stupid, and I hate them. And Nathan would be like, well, you're stupid. <laughs> and um, and uh, But no, um, so yeah, I've just kind of avoided action movies for... I would say most of my life. Um, But watching these Jackie Chan movies, I think it is really the practicality of it. Not necessarily that all of it is happening, but I think that's really kind of thrilling for me to watch. I know in um, Wheels on Meals, I was like, during that big fight scene, just like watching how intense it was reminded me um i remember when i was little we used to watch the karate kid like all the time um and it it reminded me of watching the karate kid and like how intense those uh like fight scenes were and i haven't seen the karate kid in like since i was little so i don't know if it holds up but um but it reminded me of like watching like just a really intense fight scene that like i hadn't seen in forever and um uh and i think the fact that it's real makes a huge difference and i think the fact that it's like um i was talking to someone um i'm a fiction writer i was talking to another um writer about this um about violence in uh content that we consume and um I generally don't like to consume a lot of violent content, but I'm usually always okay with a fistfight. And I think I think part of that, <laughs> and that might, might be totally wrong. I might be totally, like, screwed up <laughs> that I'm, like, always okay with a fistfight. But I think part of it is because I think, like, hand-on-hand combat is really intimate in some sort of way. Be- they, like... You hit this person with your body, and then you have to look them in their eyes afterwards. You know what I mean? When, like, action movies where you're shooting people, and it's like a shoot-off. It's like guns and stuff. It's, like, from yards and yards away, you know? And it's, like, totally distanced, and it doesn't mean anything. And you're just seeing people get, you know, like... Mowed over and killed by the dozens, you know, and it, yeah.
3: How do
2: you I feel think this is my
1: main problem with John Wick, too. I, I haven't, mm, I haven't seen yeah, it. Yeah, I mean,
2: that was our big conversation about John Wick, too, is about the, the uh-huh. yeah, I haven't seen
1: that.
2: it. So I, I'm wondering, Ash, how do you feel about the fact that Jackie Chan in this movie, and it seems like in a lot of his movies, um, in lieu of fist fights, it's often you know, fights with things that are not weapons, like he's fighting people with clothes racks and stuff in the mall. Like, does that have the same intimate quality for you as a fist fight um, does?
1: I don't know if it's, um, I mean, it's certainly not as intimate as like, I, Andrew, I don't know if you watched Wheels on Meals, but um, like the big fight in that movie was like, If I'm remembering correctly, it was it was just fist to fist, fist fist like like bare knuckle, and they were like the like the opponent's eyes were very distinct to me, and um, but so it's not as intimate as that. But I think with this movie, um, it it was more of kind of a, a chaplain Keaton situation to me when he was grabbing the coat racks and like using the props and things like that. And I thought it was really cool and I enjoyed it. Um, like when he grabbed the, the, the clothes rack, I uh, I was like, hell yeah. You know, yeah. but, um, <laughs>
2: it just demonstrates a lot of creativity.
1: Yeah. it It is really creative and I, I really enjoyed it. Um, just the choreography of it and the, um, innovation, but Yeah. I
0: don't know. Well that but well, that also kind of adds to going back to the point we were making about how it actually you know, doing the stunts at, you know, heightens the effect of the action because like him having to use the environment around him and be and, you know, think on his feet and be creative with it, even though he's it is choreographed, but he, he makes it look so effortlessly like he's just completely like he's just coming up with whatever's around him that I think that that creative, you know, watching uh, the character's brain kind of move and, and look around and work is much more impressive. And much more engaging than just pulling out the gun and going boom, boom. That's it. You know, having having some sort of shoot off is it's just it's very one note. You know what? You know you're firing back and forth. But th- with this, he doesn't have anything else. He's kind of it's almost like that like the you know pin cat in the alleyway, and he's having to fight his way out using whatever elements around him. And I think that, that adds to the, because you're what you're you're sitting there, your brain's moving. You're you're trying to think through what he can use in order to fight his way out, and he's doing the same thing and that kind of intertwines you with the character and what's happening
2: um, could we talk about the things that happen between the action scenes because the, the thing that no. brought, <laughs> brought this the movie kind of was elevated for me not just on the strength of those big set pieces but also the fact that Jackie Chan is always using stunts in non-action set piece scenes Like when he uh, stumbles upon the surprise party in his house uh, and he gets hit with a pie. I think he has to like flip back over the couch and land on the table. And it's like a really impressive physical stunt that looks like it hurts, but we're not in an action scene at all. the scene where he parallel parks the car, like Tokyo drifts into the oh parallel parking spot, It's like an insane yes. bit of action work in a non action scene. Uh, a lot of people on Letterboxd. It's will, also really funny. It's just the guy's just like, he's just like, good parking job. Yeah. That was my spot. <laughs> Even though you stole my spot. Uh, all the, a bunch of Letterboxd reviews point out that at one point, Jackie Chan scrapes poop off of his shoe by doing the moonwalk, which is another bit of just like showing off physicality in a scene that doesn't need to be in the movie, but it sir it serves both those purposes, being very funny and and showing off Jackie Chan's physicality. And damn that telephone scene! I really don't know that why he's walking
0: scene. like why he's walking by the cows. Eh.
1: He also eats noodles with pencils.
0: He does. <laughs> The telephone sequence is just uh just to to you know kind of play into it unravels you know rather yeah. <laughs> uh, rather quickly it's just this uh, like the build it, like the, the build by watching any slapstick comedy from literally any era you know where this is going like it's a it's a classic kind of who's on first type slapstick uh, bit but yeah the, the, the one how he's balancing the different phones the degree of the phone calls from him talking to his girlfriend to I was raped. Goes, you know, just that varying degree adds to the the whole element. And then I think this, you know, throws back that the rotary phone uh, is much more comedic than the cell phone because
2: just the just yeah. the twirly. <laughs> try this gag. Yeah, try the the gag phone. just wouldn't work with
0: a cell phone <laughs> or anything mobile. So you know, shout out to the rotary phone.
2: So I think that you know, imbuing all of these comedic or or just Plot-centric scenes with this really impressive and funny physicality, it makes the movie feel like the action never really stops. Uh, after the big set pieces are over, the momentum is still going, carrying you over into the next one. Um, and so I thought it was it was really put exciting. it on the poster. Yeah. <laughs>
0: that's a, that's like the poster quote: <laughs> "The action never stops."
2: <laughs> I mean, story. this literally not in a yeah. uh, cliche. <laughs> Trying to get on the poster, kind of.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think you're a little too late. It was already announced that it's going to be in the Criterion Collection,
2: so. Uh, Today. The day yeah. that we were recording this, it was announced.
1: <laughs> what?
2: Yeah, man. People uh, who live in Knoxville and it's getting a Central release yeah. getting yeah. Uh, police story. Are they doing one and two? Or just one?
0: One and two. Nice. Any, uh, any final thoughts on police story before we kind of wrap up? Uh... This one I, I I really enjoyed. I think I liked it a little more than Wheels on Meals, um, just because, like you said, uh, the action does never stop. There it 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 is con. It's either action in the more traditional form, or it's action like you were just describing in the comedic moments where it's still this very physical it's these very physical sequences, but it's completely too comedic effects. Another just example that I'm thinking off the top of my head is when May, his girlfriend is leaving and she's on her little moped and he's trying to keep her from running and he keeps like pulling her off and pulling and, and stopping and starting the moped. Oh my and finally God. <laughs> she just like kind oh. of crashes it, which again makes him feel, oh. you know, look like even more of a dick, but you know, that seems to be his, uh, his, his kind of mode for this movie. And uh, but it's still very physical, uh, somewhat comedic scene, even though I felt bad for Maggie Chung. But uh, yeah, strong recommendation on Police Story.
2: Yeah, I think there's there's a whole other podcast episode we could have about, like, the questionable gender politics of this movie. But I'm mostly willing to forgive them because I'm just so entertained by it. Um, My hot take is this is really great. i I
0: the action so, never stopped. so stops. enjoyed watching it. Andrew Swaffer. The
2: action never stopped.
3: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think it's worth checking out if you're interested in Jackie Chan, both as a performer and as a director directing himself performing. So that's significant, I think.
0: That was a very diplomatic answer.
1: You also see. You're welcome. Jackie Chan's ass, briefly. Oh my god. <laughs> So if you're interested in Jackie Chan, and that Ash, one, maybe
2: you should watch the uh, 2010 Karate Kid that has Jackie Chan as the Mr. Oh, that's
0: you're gonna say his ass is in that too, and I was like, whoa. Oh, his ass is not the, in
1: it. <laughs> as <laughs> far as I know, I mean, maybe it is. It's yeah, Jayden, yeah, it's Jaden. Yeah, Jaden Smith. Smith.
2: Yeah. Jackie Jackie Chan is the Mr. Yeah. Miyagi
1: figure. How the I guess hell you got to report back for a smell. part one. I will be watching it
0: melding of worlds
1: <laughs> Guess I'm <gonna> watch it. <laughs> um,
0: well I believe that will wrap up this, this episode of Cinematary you can find us on facebook at facebook.com slash on twitter at handle at Cinematary and on letterbox at letterbox.com slash where we post all of the movies that we talked about in this episode next week we will be continuing this series with 1994's The Legend of Drunken Master uh Lydia, you've already watched this one. Any any previews on, on how this one shakes out?
3: It's actually pretty funny. I liked it. Oh, and it's got some really good shade. No, no, no. It's got some really good shade <laughs> on colonialism and the British Empire. Fuck 'em.
0: Hell yeah.
1: Hell yeah. Fuck 'em. <laughs> the fuck out of
3: here. Let's you. uh
0: let's uh you know, we'll have this and Zama as a double feature. So we'll we'll dig into that. All right. Well thank you guys. Uh, oh check out, uh, real quick, a little plug on the site. We got some good stuff. We're still working through the best of 2018, because uh, I guess that year's never going to die in our eyes. We had our best blockbusters list this past week. Uh, If you're checking back on Monday, if you listen to this episode a little bit later, we have our best foreign films list. And uh, we also have some, we're going to have some reviews of If uh, Beale Street Could Talk from Rowan uh, Belogan, as well as Courtney Anderson. And uh, as we mentioned before, we'll have a, a review of they from ash baker so uh lots of good stuff good hot hyping content on the Cinematary website check it out if you haven't checked out our best uh, writing list of the year uh, or some of the the top 10 films if you're still like what's the best movie from 2018 we got you covered and we're we we, we completely ignored Bohemian Rhapsody so we're already better (laughs) than the Golden Globes (laughs) shout out to us thank you guys for listening we'll see you next week